One of the Sirius Cybernetic Corporation's creations is the Nutrimatic Drink Dispenser, one of which has just provided Arthur Dent with a plastic cup filled with a liquid which is almost, but not quite, entirely unlike tea. Ah. The way it works is very interesting. When the drink button is pressed, it makes an instant but highly detailed examination of the subject's taste buds, a spectroscopic analysis of the subject's metabolism, and then sends tiny experimental signals down the neural pathways to the taste centers of the subject's brain to see what is likely to be well received. However, no one knows quite why it does this because it then invariably delivers a cup full of liquid that is almost, but not quite, entirely unlike tea. I mean, what is the point? Nutrition and pleasurable sense data. Share and enjoy. Listen, you stupid machine, it tastes filthy. Here, take this cup back. If you have enjoyed the experience of this drink, why not share it with your friends? Because I want to keep them. Will you try and comprehend what I'm telling you? That drink... That drink was individually tailored to meet your personal requirements for nutrition and pleasure. Ah, so I'm a masochist on a diet, am I? Share and enjoy. Oh, shut up. Will that be all? Yes. from the 1978 original Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy radio series, and I thought it was going to be pretty fitting because today we're going to be talking about our food system, and potentially where it's going to go in the future. Hello again, and welcome back to Beyond the Wall of Sound. This is the second episode on the color out of space, where we're going to talk about our food system and how we're separated from it. The only thing I'd really like to refresh before we begin is what we know about in vitro meat, which is something that we talk about in this episode. In vitro meat, or cultured meat, is meat created using regenerative tissue techniques. What this means is that potential cells, usually embryonic stem cells, are extracted from a cow or pig, for example, and then used to grow meat that does not require killing the animal. Early problems with cultured meat include an extremely high cost of production. More recently, however, the technology has been improving, and some cultured meat has been produced at equal cost to the life cycle costs of a single burger from a living animal. One of the problems now is that people can't figure out what to call it. More on that later, and of course, as always, I'll have a link in the description. Besides that, there's a lot of other things we're going to talk about in this episode, from TV dinners to chip bags to the relationship you have with the microbes that live inside you and on your skin. If you're curious about learning more about your relationship with microbes that live with you, start by looking at the stuff on microbiomes that came up during our life extension episode. If you don't want to do that, let me give you the short recap. You have over 40,000 species of bacteria living in your body, and they affect everything from the health of your immune system to the way that you think. Maybe that'll make you think just a little bit twice about killing off some of your tiny friends. If that's not convincing enough for you, we begin to look a little more into it in this episode. So open a bag of Doritos of an absolutely ridiculous flavor and said good wishes to your gut buddies because it's time once again to talk the color out of space.
So, hello and welcome to Beyond the Wall of Sound. Today, my guest is Dr. Christy Spackman. To all of Paul's listeners, my name is Paul Settis Christy Spackman. I'm trained as a molecular biologist originally and then got really interested in the culinary arts and food science and I, I research how science and technology shape sensory experiences of smelling and tasting. So what we're going to t- be talking about today is food and with uh, we actually already recorded this episode before but I had some trouble with the microphone so we're re-recording it and for Listeners, uh, and sort of as a refresher, really for both of us, because I had to go back and I listened to the previous one right before this, um, is that the story that we're focusing on is The Color Out of Space. This is Color Out of Space Part 2. In this case, we're focusing on this concept of the blasted heath. Um, in Color Out of Space, this big asteroid comes down from the... From face um, and lands in a well and there's a color that no one has ever seen before and it starts to do a lot of these things that really reminded me of a sort of genetically modified crop horror story before genetically modified crops really existed at least not in the way that they do now you know we've had agricultural management and monocropping for a really long time but I still thought it was interesting that this sort of thing happens in a story that was written in, I think, the 1920s. So I want to talk a little bit about that. You know, it's it's interesting because the, the vast majority of science, you know, basically seems to say, okay, the, the question isn't really necessarily the, an issue of bigger versus, like, better, better for you, right? It's more of an issue of how can we have a food system that is resilient to large-scale changes and where you don't need to have radically increased, say, pesticide use in order to make up for the vulnerabilities of a genetically modified crop. Do you think that's accurate? I, I think you're getting at some really interesting questions, Paul, which is this underlying question of how do we do food when fewer and fewer people want to be making food? Mm-hmm. And... And in, in talking about this, I'm moving us a bit away from the color out of space, but we'll move, we'll move back fine. to the fan. fantastic. All the other episodes have been that way. When, when we look at our food system, within the last 150 years, you, you really start to see these radical shifts as new technologies come in and entirely disrupt systems that have been around for millennia. So apart from you know, the plow being invented as this way of mm-hmm. getting deeper into the soil you don't see much change until the tractor comes along. Right. And with the tractor, suddenly you can grow a lot more, you can use fewer people, you can mm-hmm. expand the size of your farms, and we start entering into this thing that is often referred to as the technological treadmill. Where for farmers to succeed, they really start feeling like they have to adapt and adopt new technologies, and that then shifts their practices in new ways, and it changes who gets to work and who, ha- who even has access to farming and I, I think one of the interesting things, both from our previous conversation about the color out of space and, and this conversation about genetically modified organisms, is the way in which it enters us into this, right into this conversation about what is technology's role in our lives. Yeah. And that's, you know, really, I think, sort of in the long term, what I, I would like to get to is, is specifically what is our technology's role in food? Because 
anytime we're talking about food, I feel like we begin to touch on this thing that is really interesting to me, which is that you, no matter how much you try to separate yourself from your systems of consuming and creating food, you have to eat. It's a part of your life, whether you really want it to be or not, which is why I think so many things about the way we live and the way our cultures develop and the way that we interact with each other socially are wrapped around food. Yeah. Well, I, I, it's so much of our day. Every single day, once in a while, I fast, and I'm always intrigued when I fast at the ways in which my, I have so much more time. I'm grouchier, but I have mm-hmm. so much more time. I don't have to figure out what to eat. I don't have to clean up after myself. I don't spend 30 minutes happily enjoying whatever I'm hopefully enjoying. Mm-hmm. And and I think this is where we start to see the science fiction imagination of food emerge, which so often looks like food in a pill. Or yeah. food that magically comes out of a wall where you don't have to yeah. cook, prepare it, or clean it up. And in both of, both of those situations, you're seeing this this desire to divorce oneself from those kind of mundane practices of identifying and preparing and cooking. And I imagine if we were to really dive deep into, say, a Star Trek world or something else, we might eventually find these moments where feasting happens and where people actually do take the time to prepare, mm-hmm. but most of the time it's rather going to be push the button on the wall yeah. and the food magically comes. And this is perhaps why the TV dinner worked so well. Oh, yeah. Is it brought that potential future into a present. And obviously, if you look at old advertisements for TV dinners, they kind of play on that I'm idea. not, but I feel like I might. I'm starting to get the suspicion that I would enjoy looking at old advertisements Absolutely. for TV dinners. I think we all would. Uh, but so so many things, even the Instant Pot, are, are allowing us this mm-hmm. ability to kind of compress space and time. And if you think about the entire industrial food system, that's what it does. Yeah. Like potato chips, they're compressing space and time. Normally you would fry a potato chip and eat it within 24 hours or it would start to like be soggy and mm-hmm. not, not great. And instead you put them in these amazingly engineered packages. I read some patents recently for potato chip packages and they had, you know, five or six layers of very thin, different films all doing different things. I have no idea. Right? It, it just seems like it's one thing, but you need a film for printing stuff on. You need a film that's going to prevent light from coming through. You need a film that's going to prevent grease from coming out of the package. You need a film that's going to prevent oxygen from coming in so you don't end up with the lipids oxidizing. Like All of that in that one package. The best part was the people who are filing for this patent were actually proposing to use bio-based plastics and they made the observation that potato chip bags are one hard to recycle two have this tendency to end up on the side of the road or three in a landfill and then they suggested that because this like if you used a plant-based package to create the potato chip bag it could essentially be a carbon sink once it's thrown into the landfill Mm -hmm. I, I loved seeing the the slightly strange worldview in which it made like we're saving the world by eating potato chips <laughs> that are packaged in plastic. I think that's an interesting uh, worldview to get behind because then everyone would be just fine eating their potato chips. But I mean, earlier you mentioned that we're using we're sort of using technology to get away from things that are 
I can't. I think the word you used was mundane, but they're not just mundane. It's also messy. Like today in class, I was making sauerkraut, uh, and it. I was like struck by. I was like, okay, I've got all this like cabbage on my hands. And my hands have been smelling like sauerkraut all day, and my first sort of, for lack of a better term, gut reaction was. You, this is this is really messy, right? I gotta I gotta clean my hands. I gotta do all all this stuff, but then over time I started to enjoy it a lot more. But to real briefly before we jump actually on that, I wanted to mention that we're we're still keeping this with Colorado Space because you mentioned like compressing space and time. That's sort of almost just like the way that the color out of well space comes in and actually affects laws of physics affects the wavelengths of light affects the and the the growth and flavor of plants i mean it's all in the same way i think there's definitely a comparison to be drawn there but that's so in a way do you think we could read that color as a form of technology it's yeah it's that's not human produced technology but it's technology that shifts everything mm-hmm. and then in the process shifts people's relationships with each other mm-hmm yeah, and that actually happens in the story. Uh, people start going mad. Um, one of the characters locks his wife in the house, and I, I can't remember if he, like... Someone kills someone else. I don't know. Color. Dangerous. Yeah, basically. Um, but, I mean, yeah, that's exactly sort of my point. Um, I had a, another episode that currently is going to be released after this one, but we're, we're talking about natural mind-affecting substances, and... I think in the same way, all these sorts of... There's the... I called it a powerful technology. I mean, it's not a human-made technology, like our food system is, Mm -hmm. but it's still a technology, in a way. And I guess this brings us to that question of what is technology. Yeah. So if we think of it as a tool that somehow intervenes in society, yeah, the color could be technology. It's not a human tool, but it's a... acts in a way as a tool of some unknown force mm-hmm. to to affect society. But it also then seems like it's not that dissimilar from arguing for, say, climate change or right. other things like that. It's, it's a very capacious subject. Well, it's also not that different from how through artificial technologies our food system is quite often, especially if you live in an urban area, so removed from our daily life. Mm-hmm. Um, like, that's one of the things I'm sort of... You talk about, you know, compressing space and time, which I think is an interesting idea. Like, you know, I'm fermenting things now, and that takes a pretty substantial amount of time. I remember when I was first reading, before I was going to start, you're telling me that if I want to age some mead, I could age it for months? It could be months before I open this thing that I start now? And I remember just thinking that that was, in, in my current time scale of food, like my, my food way of perceiving time, that was so much broader and longer mm-hmm. than, say, you know, taking a, a pork chop out of the freezer and cooking it up right there. Yeah. Even though the freezer I itself... Would thaw, I would thaw it first, but... <laughs> <laughs> but the freezer itself is one of those technologies that has allowed you to, in a way, step outside of... Yeah. The normal temporal constraints. Because I have no idea how aging. long ago that that pork chop was removed mm-hmm. from the pork itself. I mean, obviously fresh meat has a certain time span, mm-hmm. but before it starts to 
change significantly in ways that you detect and decide you don't want to do. And this is where, don't want to do, don't want to consume. And this is where technologies, new ones, like freezing or refrigeration and modifying the atmosphere mm -hmm. of the package, come into conversation with old ones like fermentation. Because yeah. people have, and still ferment meat, or they dry it. Like we have mm -hmm. all of these ways of essentially trying to smooth out the unevenness of seasons because as we know just from living here in phoenix we have two wonderful growing seasons fall and spring and then we have this crazy hot summer when everything essentially just goes to sleep it's yeah. our winter it's just warm rather than cold and how do you prepare for that how do you enable yourself to survive in a world where we don't have things like refrigeration or modified packaging you ferment things you dry things you start shifting and so it's it's like a form of future casting where you say a while from now I'm going to need to be able to have access to these foods mm -hmm. what are the techniques I can use to get to yeah. that and people somehow discovered that they could add salt and stuff would ferment and still be like they could still eat it and it would taste delicious and it wouldn't kill them so they kept doing it yeah, it's interesting to me that it sort of, like you mentioned, allows you to plan ahead with your food, mm -hmm. which I think is a an interesting thing to think because for the most part, I spend my time in Arizona thinking that no one should live here because it's so hot. It is, as King of the Hill put it, a monument to man's arrogance. <laughs> um, but, and well, I mean, it would be very difficult to live here with the amount of like urban heat island that mm -hmm. we have and the... Uh, without, like, say, conveniently available HVAC systems. I think that there are solutions to these kinds of ecological pressures like extreme heat mm -hmm. or extreme cold that allow you to still be eating even if you were not using all of the technology that we have that allows us to basically circumvent the issue of it's too hot or it's too cold mm -hmm. for me to, you know, preserve what I want. Yeah. You can still plan ahead and decide to sort of save things for later, at least transform them into something that will mm -hmm. be available later. Absolutely. So what do you, from your own perspective, thinking about a place like Phoenix as, as a potential pattern for other extreme environments, what do you think the core lessons are? I mean, I think that there should have been a lot more planning <laughs> involved. <laughs> Some anticipation. In, in, in the creation of a city that is in this kind of an environment. But I suppose if you were making the city at the time, you wouldn't have, if you don't know about urban heat island effect, mm -hmm. you don't, which is basically where concrete and stone and asphalt uh, absorbs a lot of heat and then traps it. If those buildings aren't there, though, to absorb all that heat, you wouldn't know that there's no serious temperature regulation. Mm -hmm. um, so as a result, it would be kind of difficult to plan for that unless you have the knowledge that we have now. You know, hindsight is twenty twenty, so to speak. Yeah. I, I think this raises an interesting question from a food systems or urban ecosystem perspective. If we were to follow along with these urban gardening movements... Um, there's an artist who has a whole thing called Edible Estates where mm -hmm. this artist is inviting people to transform front yards and other, sh other spaces into mm -hmm. essentially food production spaces. 
if we did that, could we mitigate in some ways the heat island effect? But that also, of course, raises the questions of how healthy is our soil at this mm -hmm. point? Have we contaminated it to such an extent that growing food there would be a bad idea? And there's also the question of water use. Like, does it make sense for us to be growing the sorts of high intensity or high water requiring fruits and vegetables that so many people in North America are accustomed to eating? What I was just going to say is that I, I've, I don't, have you ever read Sapiens? I haven't. Uh, by Yu Yuval Noah Harari. I'm not sure if that's his name, but um, one thing that he talks about is these transitions between, you know, the agricultural and the cognitive, or the cognitive first and then into the agricultural revolution. And one thing that he mentions is that a lot of, you know, early people, hunter-gatherers, would have had a very extraordinarily variable diet. You know, breakfast one day would have maybe been, like, onions and mushrooms and tubers, and then, you know, another day it could have been, like, a, a rabbit steak, if you have the time for that. Mm -hmm. um, and so what I think is interesting is, even though we have access to all these different food that we can grow in all these different places, we also now have the ability to consistently consume the same kind of food, potentially for every meal day in and day out. If I wanted to, I could really, really try to eat, for example, I made the example of pork chops, because mm -hmm. I've been eating them a lot recently. I could eat pork chops for breakfast, lunch, and dinner every single day for all of my caloric content for the day, and I would feel terrible after, like, two days. But that's something that our food system enables me to do, and I think it's interesting that we have the potential for mm -hmm. more diet variability. But I think, for the most part it begins to manifest itself potentially more as less variability in diet. That's a really interesting question. We certainly have lost an ability to attend to seasons through our diet. So for example, I can walk into any grocery store right now and there are watermelons, there are grapes, there are blueberries, there are raspberries and strawberries and blackberries and mangoes and onions and winter things like kale all in the same spot so. and i i think what i what this speaks to me is i hear that list and i think i don't know what the seasons are for any of those things i mean mm -hmm. i assume fruit doesn't grow in the winter generally but uh, generally not <laughs> i mean raspberry season is summer i picked raspberries as a teenager mm -hmm. for a job and you know we were waking up at four in the morning to go pick raspberries but that was okay because we weren't in school at the time right um you know late July, mid-July, fantastic. Eat all the raspberries you want. And now I can get them all the time. And so we've lost what you might consider the gluttony of certain seasons. Mm -hmm. So spring, when all your... It's the first time you've seen greens for months oh, yeah. if you live in a northern climate. And you're so excited and all you do is feast on greens. And mm -hmm. then summer comes and you have these additional things as your gardens start to produce in fall is real time of feasting because it's the harvest and everything else but then winter comes and hopefully the things like the squashes you grew are going to get you through the winter until mm -hmm. the greens come again and that's it's just not a season a seasonality that most people in the northern hemisphere uh, most people in urban settings period are accustomed to at least if they have a certain like, level of socioeconomic stability 
Yeah. I mean, the seasons, too, are very difficult to predict. That sound that you're hearing right now is an extraordinary amount of wind blowing through here. It's, <laughs> I guess I guess it's the spring, but it's been raining a lot this week and buildings creaking. And everything. Yeah. It, it, but, to me, it sounds like winter, but it doesn't look like winter. No, no. I, I kept wondering whether it was going to rain today, but I don't think so. One sad little cloud in the sky, <laughs> probably not. They're, they're all over on the other side of the building. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I think... It's interesting when you start to really make something yourself from the lowest possible denominator of ingredients. There's a really interesting thing that happens that's interesting to me because I've only recently just started to experience it firsthand where I feel like there's an actual relationship with my food. Mm. Even if it's not like alive and it's not like I hunted it, it could be something completely inanimate. I could be fermenting something and, you know, I am having a relationship with those yeast microbes, which isn't... I mean, it's something that we usually think about having relationships with, but it's, I think the taking something and making it from its component parts makes it more of a significant experience, you know, than going in to the store and buying it. And on some level, sometimes I'm like, I don't want to drink this or I don't want to eat this because I, I, even though I made it to be eaten, I've put a lot of effort into crafting this thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a, a very, it makes it a lot more rewarding though when I do eat it. Absolutely. There's something about the practice of learning to do something and then doing it that is so rewarding, even though it's frustrating. And yeah. I, I think realizing that you can sidestep in certain ways industrial food systems through partnering with microbial life is a really exciting moment of realization. Mm-hmm. Even as you start to discover these new barriers and boundaries that exist. So you, you do, I assume, start paying more attention to your environment as you're preparing your food in ways to say, well, I want certain microbial life to survive, but I want to prevent other microbial life. What are the things I need yeah. to do to make an environment that is the most nurturing for this one thing, but won't result in, say, scary, freaky black mold growing, which will then ruin and this other thing. That makes me feel like microbial life is also a good comparison to the color out of space, where, you know, in, in, HP Love, in a lot of H.P. Lovecraft stories, these monsters and things that appear aren't necessarily evil. In the case of the color out of space, the, it doesn't even appear to have an agenda or thought or anything like that. It just is and mm-hmm. that is its existence by being so it has the potential anything that is just powerful but without an agenda sort of has the potential to be dangerous or mm-hmm. not like uh with microbes you know you could end up with e coli living in your cheese or something like that and mm-hmm. that's obviously not a good thing depending on the strain D- are there strains of active there, there e coli non non-dangerous strains of e coli oh i didn't know that and then there are strains that are really bad for you. Okay. Um, but my point is, is then you also have these other effects that are highly beneficial. Mm-hmm. And of course, HP Lovecraft focuses on these non-beneficial things of something that's just sort of what I would call a powerful technology mm-hmm. in a way of speaking. But there's definitely... I, I find that it's an interesting way of to think about still having a relationship with microbes while not exactly feeling like they have agency in the same way that Mm -hmm. you or I has agency where they're actively assessing and making decisions or something like that. It it just calls for different sort of logics. Yeah. And I think this is part of this brings us into a larger conversation about living with 
others mm-hmm. and not just human others but others who operate on different value systems or mm-hmm. different time scales or different modes of being than we do and what what does that look like and from an animal studies perspective maybe it's an attempt to change your relationship with animals mm-hmm. from a microbial studies perspective maybe what we start thinking about is you know how do we promote certain forms of life while perhaps not promoting others so so this interesting question of what has been termed shepherding can continues to exist out there because we as a species like pretty much every other species is going to continue to seek to promote our welfare mm-hmm. but finding ways to do that that will allow multiple forms of life to live i, I think is a pretty good good goal I asked you this last time, but I sort of wanted to continue the conversation because I think it is interesting. What do you think of in vitro meat? <laughs> I don't remember what I said last time, but I'm I guessing what I think is the same, which is I'm intrigued. It's a fascinating idea, but I'm also annoyed because to me it cuts. So, so I guess the real question is why do people want to eat mm-hmm. in vitro meat? And I, I fall very much in the line of thinking that sees animals as an inherent part of good farming practice. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe I'm a little little Pollyannish in that. And so I'm not, I'm not particularly opposed to eating normal meat, which, which makes me not a great <laughs> right. candidate for, for in vitro meat. But what I am really intrigued by are the ways in which the conversations about in vitro meat Imagine technology as the answer to what is in many ways really an ethical question of how do we relate to animals and Mm -hmm. how do we value animal life. And one of my concerns is I actually think the best thing we could do for the environment is just eat a lot less meat. Mm -hmm. Um, And that that requires a shift in how we think about and prepare food. It requires a shift in how we conceptualize ourselves as entities that are growing. So there's this constant idea like you need tons of protein for your muscles to be stronger or if you're an adherent to a high protein low carbohydrate diet this this imagination is often portrayed through many of those diet books of diets that are really high in animal protein but there's so many other forms of protein out Mm -hmm. there and why is it that meat is an everyday thing as opposed to a once a week or feast day thing Um, so that's one of the things that intrigues me is there's this this technology that's allowing us to continue to ignore our larger relationships with our ecologies in particular ways because I'm I'm not convinced that we'll ever actually get to a point where lab grown meat can be entirely divorced from the rest of the food system. Yeah. At least in its initial phases they're using fetal bovine serum to grow the tissue that's potentially going to become the lab grown state. It's kind of fortunate that you still need the animals that are going to be supplying the the cells that will become the in vitro meat. Yeah, I I mean there's certainly a question of as, you know, humans we're breeding certain numbers of animals to to feed ourselves, so we could just drastically reduce the number of animals we're breeding and let the rest of the animals live out a good long comfortable life Mm -hmm. i mean there is the question that's happened to horses right yeah there's the question that's commonly asked though which is what are we going to do with all of those cows because there are billions of cows 
They're great producers of improved soil. Yeah, they are also great producers of methane gas. Yeah. No, yeah, I wish I remember the different terms that were used. I believe um, different people, you know, from different sides, whether it was someone developing in vitro meat or not, mm-hmm. people were looking through different terms, such as, like, craft meat was one of them, mm-hmm. fake meat, um, lab-grown meat, lab-grown tissue, but I can't remember what the one that people thought was the most mm-hmm. accurate, but uh, I, myself, am a fan of craft meat, because that's kind of, I think that's kind of funny, because it sort of makes you think of, like, craft beer mm-hmm. and local things like that, when it, it I think it's really as far from that ethos as one could sort of get. It also raises this really interesting question, once again, of how much do we want to require access to food go through technological intervention? Mm -hmm. So going back to the microbe conversation, if microbes allow us to preserve food in ways that sidestep these inbuilt infrastructure, technological infrastructures that's that's kind of cool yeah because it helps us be more resilient well Mm -hmm. if raising some chickens in your house like on on, or near where you live helps Mm -hmm. you be more resilient the second you turn to lab grow meat you've excluded a lot of people from modes of production yeah and especially if you then attach this ethical thing to it um where the one becomes the ideal and the other potentially becomes a, a dirty thing or a thing that's written out of society as a as an acceptable practice i I question what that actually does from a social justice perspective. Mm-hmm. Are we just going to end up creating new weird hierarchies within our food systems or mm-hmm. new ways of othering people? Um, on the other hand, I'm pretty excited for my friends who are vegan and vegetarian who nonetheless somehow really miss the taste of meat that there are things like the impossible burger out there mm-hmm. that are all plant-based and yet somehow can still give them an approximation mm-hmm. of that sensation they may be missing in vitro meat is sort of a in my opinion at least a value sidestepping of this thing that i've sort of come to be more and more familiar with which is understanding what it's like when the food system makes you aware that you're a part of the natural system as well. Mm. Because when it's just the food system and you don't see the natural system going on behind it all, it's. It, I don't think it's just an issue of alienating you from you know the animals that perhaps you are consuming or the... We're already pretty alienated. Well, no, I, I believe that, but it's if you're making food together with other people and you're sharing it with them, that's also a social experience too. Mm -hmm. And I think that that sort of sense of community is only magnified by making it more and more a product that you yourself have created Mm -hmm. versus a product that has been created by somebody else and then distributed to and prepared by you. Mm -hmm. For example, I feel like it would be a big difference if you Uh, If you have your own animals and you have your own garden and you harvest things from that and then prepare it and turn it into a a dinner for your friends, then if you were to go to a supermarket and buy TV dinners and say, have your friends over and say, hey, we have a TV dinner night, though that does sound kind of fun, (laughs) you know? Yeah. In a weird sort of way. This just brings us back to the ongoing question of labor, though. Part of the reason we have this amazing urbanization of the U.S. and other places is people don't 
decided they didn't want to farm anymore. They yeah. didn't want to do that sort of labor. They weren't able to have the lifestyle they desired through mm-hmm. that form of labor. And my parents grow a big garden, and they spend all of August up until midnight or one in the morning canning. As like to so, yeah. so there's all of this additional labor, not just the normal jobs that they have, but this additional work to preserve their food when they could just go to the grocery store and buy tomatoes in a can. Yeah. They won't taste as good. Well, why do they do that then? Is it just they don't... <laughs> is it literally that they just don't taste as good? No, it's it's economic also. Right. I mean, this you save money by spending your own time and labor mm-hmm. to, yeah. to produce food so you don't have to pay others for food. So you plant the garden, there's this initial investment of seeds... But it's a pretty small investment, and then you continue investing your time, and you mm-hmm. produce these things, and somehow you go to gentle or not gentle battle with all of the other things in the world that are like, ooh, deliciousness, I right. should eat this. Um, and, and then in the end, you know, you, you have this harvest, this excess of tomatoes and other things to deal with. My personal nemesis were the green beans as a child. Your nemesis? Yeah. Why? Because I hated picking oh, them. Didn't. I, my dad, uh, when I was younger, he grew uh, green beans, and I actually always really enjoyed just picking them off and eating them, but I like them. Fantastic. I liked green beans. I just didn't like picking them as a kid. Hmm. It always involved a lot of mosquito bites. Oh, I see. With me, I sort of think of that and understand that it's it's one example, because you mentioned protecting the garden itself from you know other things that mm-hmm. decide that they might find that delicious. What I find interesting is the the large scale solution generally is uh, okay. Let's spray you know pesticides. Mm-hmm. Finding out more and more that there are other solutions where you can have other species that compete with it. Um, I, my best example again comes back to the microbial conversation, which is with the making of raw cheese, where you'd use a wooden barrel that has a microbiome in it that um, makes it so that the dangerous strains of E. coli that you don't want in the cheese don't actually manage to get a foothold as they would in a stainless steel barrel because you have the ecosystem functioning in sort of a harmony, mm-hmm. uh, which I think is really interesting that these these sort of, I could call them technological mechanisms, already exist. Yeah, It's just figuring out where to see them. Yeah, well, I I think one of the big challenges is we know so little about our environment. The concept of ecology itself is relatively new. Mm -hmm. And so thinking ecologically about how insects are interacting with the environment, even thinking about pollinators, this is a conversation that is relatively new. Mm -hmm. But I, I think it's fine to end it here. Okay. Well, Paul, it's been a pleasure to chat. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Appreciate you doing this a second time it's always good to have these conversations i i go back and i listen to these and i'm editing them and i was like wow that was fun you know it's it's nice (laughs) to to have interesting conversations with people i don't know if there's necessarily a place you know for conversation space all the time where it's just people talking (laughs) (laughs) probably when we're working together yeah i mean imagine how much imagine if you were working with a group of people to make kraut and it took all day Mm-hmm. You just talk. Yeah. While you made. This is a, a, another good reason to make things with your friends. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Cool.
so fun for me to talk about food because it's something that goes into every aspect of our life. It's a place where people can bond, and if you've never had the experience of creating something with somebody else from scratch or fermenting something in a jar, you're definitely missing out. Food is absolutely wonderful, but our desire for an easy and secure food supply makes trying new things kind of scary because we don't know how much we place our trust in the food system to take care of things for us until we try to get things done without it. But in the end, it's a weird and wonderful world that can bring people together like nothing else can. It's scary at first, but then it gets fun. At the very least, get your friends and try making a home-cooked meal together. It's a lot better than food from a box, or, as the future might contain, food from a wall. The song in this episode is one of my favorites. It's called Crop Circles, and I really recommend listening to the full thing. I'd like to welcome you back in advance for our final episode, or our final full episode, where we're going to be talking mind-altering substances, cognitive enhancement, and H.P. Lovecraft's The Shadow Out of Time. See you then! <laughs>